and welcome to the 127th episode of Leak of Rage Pokemon Trading Card Game Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kevin Clementi, aka Mellow underscore Magikarp. I'm joined today by two very special temporary guest hosts. Joining us for, I believe it is the second time, correct? Uh, we have Luke Morsa, aka Celio's Network. Luke, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Kevin. Thank you for asking. Thank you for joining us. I always appreciate anytime we can get someone who's like so involved. I feel like sometimes in the community, people are like, oh yeah, I hear that guy's voice all the time, but also not really like you do have to click on your videos to actually get the input and so i'm hoping this will remind people like oh that dude puts out some really good stuff right thanks thanks and joining us once again we have a sack at bremer aka sack sack 17 sack how you doing tonight i'm doing well i also wanted to say before we did this podcast i watched the celio's latest videos like the two latest videos she just put out they're so good they're so good (laughs) Thank I would recommend you. watching them. I was like, wow, this is good. I might actually like watch this more often, more consistently than I do. I do have to say, sorry, Luke, that we're putting you out on the spot like this was not meant to praise you, but <laughs> you have unfortunately been one of the people who has changed the like, way that like videos are in this game, where it's like, oh, it takes actual effort to be a competent <laughs> content creator in the Pokemon trading card game now. Obviously, there's other ones too, but you are definitely leading that pack. So I'm just talking about Pokemon cards, <laughs> man. <laughs> anyway let's do it some more i'm I'm excited to do that today that's what we're here for yeah (laughs) we're going to talk about laic a little bit and how paradox rift is going to be impacting it so of course we had our episode last week with brent kieran and andrew hedrick talking about what they thought was happening but you know that was really only a couple days into the paradox rift meta so we're going to see what are some of the updates what would the three of us bring because we have three pretty competent players up here who aren't attending LAIC for various reasons, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's, yo, Brazil's pretty far from where we all live, but what would we be playing? What are we expecting and how will Paradox Rift actually affect this tournament versus say the Toronto regionals that we saw only a couple of weeks ago? It has not been that long, even though it feels like quite a while. So I want to start with what are the decks that you would be bringing to LAIC if you were going. Now, of course, you're not going, but I'm going to ask maybe something that's not one of those Twitter clout things that you post two days before of like, look at me, I'm going to play Arceus Venusaur VMAX, and then you get those likes and you're like, yeah, I ain't got to prove nothing to you. Luke, can we go ahead and start with you? What would you be bringing if you were going to play LAIC? Let's say it was tomorrow. Gardevoir. (laughs) Why Gardevoir? (laughs) why not it's like i don't know like I, I i can force the game to go longer than my opponent probably wants it to with single prize pokemon mm-hmm. and they're going to mess up at some point and i'm not so <laughs> my my deck is very good so i will beat them <laughs> i mean that that's just been like that, that's just how it's gone in the online events i've been playing in and so like i'm pretty conf- i'm i would be pretty comfortable at least like making it through day one with a good record and then like even in day two like uh a good player on roaring moon is still going to be a favored matchup for me um a good player on snorlax stalls going to be decent at least uh you know so like even when we get into day two and then the skill level kind of balances out and it's not just like waiting for my opponents to misplay and then take advantage of that i feel like gardevoir is just really great um the targets off its back a little bit because People think that Iron Hands just existing as a card checks every single prizer. Um, so yeah, Gardevoir. Uh, if it wasn't Gardevoir, I like Arvinzard, 
but it just feels like a little bit of a worse version of Guardy, but it doesn't tie as often. Um, and it, it definitely has its ups and downs compared to Guardy. Um, and then if I wanted to not play a stage two deck, it'd be Fusion Strike Mew because I still really think that can win the event. Um, but yeah, but if it, yeah, Guardy's my number one and it would probably take a lot of convincing to change that. So for people who don't know, you did get what top four in the late night, which was a best of one. And then you've won the regional of doom. Shout out to senior doom for hosting that, which was a best of three tournament with 260 people. I played 13 and a half hours of <laughs> Gardevoir straight and four or five of those were mirror matches and two of them were control. That sounds incredibly fun actually i don't know gardevoir is really fun but how are you able to handle 13 and a half hours of gardevoir because i played in yeah. sacramento and i was definitely feeling it by about round four um yeah i mean it's uh it's definitely a little different when you're playing online at your computer you know you have the comfort of your house but you also have distractions sometimes because of that so it it's really really hard to compare online for one to one like there's so many differences like the rounds were 60 minutes instead of 50 to give people time to check in and send challenges and deal with the inner workings of ptcg live um yeah so it, it's it's a whole different beast from online to irl but um what was the question i'm sorry <laughs> So the question was, how'd you handle 13 and a half hours of Gardevoir, oh, okay. which I think you're I getting. really love. Yeah, I really love Gardevoir. Um, I played it at NAIC. I've played it just a lot in general. Um, the deck hasn't changed too much. And um, yeah, it's a really enjoyable deck. It's fun, exercises my brain a lot. Um, I think 13 hours of pretty much any deck would be hard to do, but... The Gardevoir games do go a little longer on average than most decks, so that definitely makes it tiring. But um, yeah, it was fun. I was very happy with the way my deck worked. There were definitely some rounds that I won because of, you know, online environmental factors. Like we were talking a little bit about before we started recording how the differences from online to real life. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, the late night... Um, I placed fourth out of 300 plus, and that was just a slightly different guard of our list um, that I had cooked up a few hours before the tournament. And it was really interesting because in top eight, I hit a Japanese player playing almost the exact 60 of guard of our. So we had a really cool mirror match. Um, and then I ended up putting in Avery for the Doom tournament because uh, Avery was something that had just started popping up in guard of our decks. Wasn't sure about it, but then. I realize Zashin's a dead card, so I cut that for Avery. Um, yeah, you, you definitely have to be well-rested and know your matchup concepts and be prepared to play a passive deck and be patient if you're going to play Guardi for a big tournament. So I have one question. I know, Zach, you also said you had some Guardi stuff uh, to ask, but the first one is something that I've been asked a few times, and I've given a probably less than coherent answer to the people who have brought it up. But you played Cresselia and Screamtail in Gardevoir. Why are you running both of them? They're both bench snipe Pokemon. Yeah, they're they're both so good in different scenarios. Um, Screamtail is incredibly efficient because a two psychic embraces means you're sniping eighty wherever you want. 
But if they have a Manaphy, you'll just do it with Cresselia, but it's a little bit harder. If they have Manaphy and Jirachi, they're not playing a very good board. And so you're winning because of that. Mm. And then you also have Avery in your deck. So if you ever Avery, your opponent has to make some very hard decisions. And if you Avery and Countercatcher and they, their board had Manaphy, Jirachi, it, it's a mess. So... Um, you know, and online, the opponents definitely panic because they see I have Man uh, I have Cresselia and Screamtail. How do we protect against these? Do we try to protect against both or do we protect against neither? Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely had opponents benching Manaphy when they should have benched Jirachi and Jirachi when they should have benched Manaphy and things like that. Um, in a real life event, I'd imagine how it goes is for any given tournament, there'd probably be a Screamtail or Cresselia that's more popular in the typical deck list. So players would just assume I'm playing the more popular one at first. And then when maybe they see both and then they have to start to think about a new game plan, but yeah, the, it, it puts on a lot of pressure and it also gives you a lot of options because uh, against Lost Zone, against Iron Valiant, if that is around um, uh, against Lost Zone specifically, is where Cresselia is the best, and then Screamtail's pretty much better everywhere else. Mm -hmm. But Cresselia can be good against something that has Manaphy, like um, any decks that play Bidoofs. Uh, well, the Bidoof already has bench protection, and um, they also have the Manaphy in a lot of decks that play Bidoof as well. So you can't knock out a Bidoof with Screamtail, right? Mm -hmm. And Bidoofs are a really good target uh, early turns with Cresselia, uh, I remember having a game, I think, okay, so not the most competitive matchup, but it wasn't one of the online tournaments. I think it was against Cloth Electrode, and they were they had the Bibberal line in there, mm -hmm. and I think I either prized a Mirage Step, or I had a weird start, so I went Candy Guardi on turn two, and I uh, Moonglow Reverse sniped their only Bidoof, and then they benched another Bidoof, and I did it again, so... There's plenty of situations where Cresselia is either better or it's just going to work out for you. There's also situations where one of them is prized, so you make do with the other, but you would never run two of one of them. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I assume Heavy Ball has the exact same problem as before, which is like, how are you going to draw it? <laughs> yeah, no, Heavy Ball and Guardy feels weird. Um, yeah. Cool. Zach, do you have anything else about Guardy? Uh, no, I just like the way that the lists are evolving. We've seen a difference from like pre-Paradox Rift to current Paradox Rift in the list. Uh, more adding Avery and stuff like that. Now we have the Cresselia, the Screamtail, and we've also cut like Battle Pass. So we like the Guardia slow down a lot. The games have become more intricate. That's the way to describe because like you have, you can Avery uh, pick apart their bench like that. You can just Screamtail. Sell it. You just go back and forth with it all. Uh, I, I like it. I think it's very strong right at the moment. I think there's a lot with Gardevoir, and I'm going to bring up Arvin's art a little bit later too. It feels about the same way of Countercatcher, a card that wasn't actually mentioned during that whole thing, even though I think Luke, you would agree that uh, Countercatcher does a lot for the deck, right? Yeah. Um, I'm currently only playing one in my list. Um, I can the 60th card right now for my list is either second Avery or second Countercatcher. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually think second Avery gets more value because you like to see it like on turn two against uh, against Chi and Pal and against Gardimir. Um, 
probably some other decks, but off the top of my head, she and Pal and Guardian Mirror are the two important ones to see Avery early. Mm -hmm. And you don't really need to see Countercatcher early. In a lot of games, you just need to see it at like one point throughout the game. Mm -hmm. You need to have that turn where you can Countercatcher. Um, but yeah, Countercatcher is great so that you can Iono and uh, Countercatcher in the same turn, or Avery and Countercatcher in the same turn. And it also allows you to play one boss and feel pretty good about that. Uh, Professor Toro's scenario is pretty incredible for the deck as well, because um, I'm sure people have all seen a play where you collapse Stadium away. Your Guard of REX so that the opponent doesn't have any two prizers to hit, or you just collapse Stadium away something that had stranded energies on it mm -hmm. so that you can then Psychic Embrace them onto something else and win the game. Um, Professor Toro's scenario is essentially like one other pseudo collapse stadium floating around in the deck and a lot of times you can hit into either your one of collapsed or your one professor toro and either of them will do sometimes you need the specific one for what you're trying to do um but the toros also doubles as a healing card i've used it so much against lost zone box mm -hmm. um it also doubles as a counter to snorlax i've comfortably been beating control snorlax because i play one boss one toro and a pal pad so as long as the pal pad doesn't get misfortune sistered away that matchup's pretty good um so yeah and uh like we said Screamtail, but also luxurious cape is an incredible card um something to note is that you can put it on your mana fee in the lost zone matchup and it only gives up a prize card if knocked out by damage from an attack so if you have a 170 hp loss uh, 170 hp mana fee um if your opponent lost mines that to death they're still only taking one prize card for it so mm. it's actually really annoying they're gonna have to loss vacuum it um you can also have them like bait them into hitting it once and then toro it up and then not even bench the mana fee anymore because now you have two guard exes and two shining arcana guardies and everything's out of lost mine range it's awesome. I think it was a good rundown of like the cards and the additions that Gardevoir has so far. So you bring Guardi. Zach, what would you bring if you were in LAIC and the tournament was tomorrow? All right. Um, hundred percent honesty, I bring every deck. <laughs> if you ever need extra cards, I bring every deck under the sun. Um, like recently in Toronto, I showed up to Toronto. There's a deck that I wanted to play. It was our Gudra. Didn't have the cards for it. So uh, Friday night, I'm panicking, looking for cards uh, to play this deck that I end up going 7-2 with in the day two. So somebody just needs cards, and I like to have make sure I have them. But uh, the cards that I would make sure I would pack, if I could only bring like three decks or a deck, would be Guardi. Um, probably like number two or three for me, to be honest. But Guardi, uh, Max, and Lost Box. I think Lost Box is really underrated right now. Uh, counter catch is very good at the moment, like we said. And depends on like what version you build. If you can go like Roxanne Countercatcher, or if you're playing the Tina version um, of Lost Zone, you can go Roxanne Countercatcher Path. I think that combo is very powerful right now. So I'd probably bring those three if I had to choose. But in reality, I just bring them all. <laughs> when you say Mew, is it Fusion or is it DTE? I really like Turbo Mew. Um, just a fan of it, but I think the correct version to go nowadays would be Fusion Mew. It's just too explosive. What is Turbo Mew? Uh, DTE Mew, like double Turbo Mew. Oh, gotcha. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think there's like 
I, I there's oftentimes not a correct answer for what kind of Mew to bring, but I think yeah. now there is a correct answer and it has to be Fusion Strike Mew because I don't see DTE Mew beating Roaring Moon and DTE Mew does not beat Arvinzard with TM Evolution because you can't Luxray grab her away their pieces anymore if they're just evolving them straight onto the board. Mm -hmm. So I think even Fusion Strike Mew is losing to Charizard now. Um, but Fusion Strike Mew versus Roaring Moon is a straight up 50 50. So um, you don't want to be losing to both Charizard and Roaring Moon because I think they'll both be 10% plus. Uh, so if you are playing Mew, which I, like I said, I think Fusion Strike Mew can very realistically win the event. Um, I think it has to be Fusion Strike Mew just because of the meta share of decks that threaten DTE Mew. And a lot of decks are choosing to go second nowadays. So if you can like win the coin flip, go second, slow them down, and like snipe mm -hmm. something with an ice cube. Like, yeah. We just talked about Guardi, right? Uh, they cut all the battle passes. They mm -hmm. don't get those setup turns anymore. So if you're like, oh, I'm playing Guardi, you go to like a game. If you make it to a game two and three, I don't know. But if you do, and you choose to go second, they only get it down one where else, and you just either snipe it with Ice Cube or KO it with Meloetta. The game's all pretty much over from that turn on. Yeah, Fusion Strike Mew is really hard for my list uh, because of that, because I don't run the battle passes, so it's harder to get double Ralts and Manaphy. And even if you do, um, they can still run through your board pretty aggressively. Um, so yeah, it's not like... Uh, it's probably like no worse than like a 40, 60 or so, but there are definitely hands where it's like against a lot of decks... Guardy's fine with just Ralts Ralts. Hmm. But um against decks with Shuriken or against Fusion Strike Mew that's fast or against like Maridon that's fast, against some of those, it's not just fine to have Ralts Ralts because then you go Mirage Step and then you lose another Curlia and then your board is just a step and two refinements. I think if I were going the one deck that I'm absolutely in love with right now, and Luke, you mentioned it too, and that's the Arvinzard. I think the way you described it too as being a little less intricate than Guardi, it has less options. It's a little faster kind of, and that you're just going to eventually attack, attack, attack. But that's mm -hmm. part of the appeal to me is mm -hmm. that it yeah. is a little more of a straightforward. It is a slow deck still. I feel like there are a lot of things you can do with it. And that is obviously, you know, sometimes you're going to sit there and be like, I could take a Charizard knockout, but I'm going to sit here as single prizers, give up a prize, keep Countercatcher active for the whole game because that's kind of massive, right? You have four Arvins, you use one on turn one, let's pretend. You Three Arvins is suddenly now four bosses orders because you have three Arvins mm -hmm. plus the Countercatcher, right? So there are these little things that you can really do with that, with the Defiance Band as well, being able to, you know, that extra 30 can be absolutely massive. So I've been a big fan of the TM Evolution specifically. I think that build is... I don't want to say it's underrated because I think everyone's starting to realize that it is just the way to go. And I think B-Barrel is a lot smoother than people are also realizing. Like, I've heard talk about, oh, Pidgeot is so good. And you're not wrong, right? Right. But in reality, B-Barrel is kind of like, well, I'm going to get up to five and I don't yeah. need much to do anything. Right. So it's felt and you have good. it guaranteed with the TM Evo. Like, yeah, it's guaranteed. It's on the board. And if your opponent boss kills your Bibarol, they didn't boss kill your Charmeleon, and now you don't even need candy, so you don't really need that much draw support, because all you need is a Charizard, and that's it. Yeah, so suddenly you have four Ultra Balls, 
three Charizards, four Arvins. And then the Ionos could also draw you into it because you haven't taken a prize yet. So you have six mm -hmm. extra cards that you can see off of it. Right. So, yeah, it's it's so powerful. You know, you go second with the deck 100 percent now. I think Chien Pao might be the only debatable matchup in that one. But in the handful of games I've played, uh, going first feels truly awful with the deck yeah into like everything it feels like and then going second you're just like all right cool if my hand's not great i'm gonna get a b barrel if my hand's fine i'm gonna go charmeleon charmeleon and then like what are you gonna do opponent there's no real correct answer for most decks in that situation and charmeleon having 100 hp has also been truly life-saving in so many occasions where it's like i can't manaphy or if i do i only have one charmander that's bad so it's like well here you go, two Charmeleons, Moonlight Shuriken, your heart's desire. I don't care anymore because you can't KO yeah. either of the two. Yeah, and honestly, Arvinzard, it's pretty fun because um, the different Charmanders and Charmeleons you play actually matter so much. Mm -hmm. um, I play one of the 90 HP Charmeleon that does two energy for 70 and then two of the 100 HP Charmeleon that does 90 for three energy, I think, um, because... Sometimes if your Charmander was the active Pokemon that you attach to, TM Evolution, it pops off, your opponent doesn't do anything, I'll just evolve to the 90 HP Charmeleon and swing for 70. It either sets up uh, important damage or knocks out a single prizer. Um, yeah, like you said, I'm very often passing or poking for 20 or doing something very insignificant on like turns two, sometimes even three of my opponents having a slow start because I'm not putting a Charizard down. I'm waiting for you to take a single prize knockout and then we're going to go to town mm -hmm. with Countercatcher and Iono and Defiance Band and whatnot. Um, you also mentioned about the going second with Arvinzard, which obviously very good going second, definitely go second with the deck. Um, but that's something I forgot to mention about Guardi is that we're in a format now where we have a deck like Arvinzard that wants to go second, right? Um, I, I don't know what Maridon players do, uh, if they go second or they go first, I, I've, I've never understood. Um, <laughs> we, and then we have Roaring Moon. Roaring Moon wants to go second a lot of the time as well, right? Because if you're, Roaring Moon is against another Roaring Moon, or if Roaring Moon's against a Maridon, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of matchups where it's important that Roaring Moon goes second, and just in general, it's pretty good going second because you can get that turn one KO a lot of the time. Now, there's also all of these other decks that are scared of Roaring Moon. What if my opponent, you know, blind into a matchup? What if my opponent's playing Roaring Moon? Maybe I go second just so I don't get donked. What if my opponent's playing Iron Valiant Metacham and I'm not scared of the turn one donk, but I'm scared of the Yoga Loop on turn, you know? So there's a lot of decks and a lot of players that will be choosing second for a multitude of reasons. And Guardi can just sit there, go first, put down two Ralts and then Mirage Step. So it's so a little bit more Guardi propaganda for you. Like I love I was, like, decks. wondering where this is going. I, I <laughs> it's more guardy propaganda. I love decks that can win the coin flip even when they lose the coin flip. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I played I played Fusion Mew for one major event ever. And that was like my reasoning. It was like, okay, I don't care if I win the coin flip because it was in the um it was in the format right before Palkia came out, probably. Um, like right when we came back from the pandemic break. Um, and like the, winning the coin flip was a huge thing. Like mm -hmm. that was what Twitter was complaining about every day. Like, I feel like if I lose the coin flip, I lose the game. So I was just like, I'm going to play fusion strike Mew because you don't really care about the coin flip. Um, so I love looking for 
those little percentage points in places where you can take advantage of where the shifts in the meta are going that aren't even inside of the game. You know, the coin flip is something that a lot of people won't even think about because it's not part of the game, but like playing a deck that gives you um, this power that like, okay, maybe instead of losing the coin flip 50% of the time and I have to go second, maybe 25 or maybe 50% of the time that I lose the coin flip, my opponent is choosing second. So now it's almost like I'm winning the coin flip 75% of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's really cool to look for those kinds of uh, little advantages you can find with certain decks. And that was something that definitely really drew me for Gardevoir. I think that's really good advice for absolutely every format that has existed for the past however long like back in the adp eternatus days pikaram was also that deck where people never wanted to acknowledge going second into pikaram was actually optimal because you're like no i need to bench my eternatus to get an energy and it mm-hmm. felt really good to be like okay you're gonna go first and i want to go second so like i win the coin, the coin flip doesn't matter <laughs> like i'm winning mm-hmm. the coin flip no matter what right so i think that's really good yeah yeah that was the thing that finally convinced me to play pikaram <laughs> even though i didn't like it Okay, well, you're off the podcast now. It was nice having you. Pikaram was the. <laughs> I made so many videos that were like, Pikaram is dead. And then I was like, Pikaram is dead again. No, really, this time Pikaram is gone. And then I just stopped because it was never dead. It was never gone. And that's what a lot of people are like with Fusion Mew today. Or just Mew in general. So I'm going to go and make the declarative. Luke, you would definitely play Guardi, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Sack, you were kind of wishy-washy, but... I feel like I know you well enough to say it seems like Fusion Mew would be the most likely deck that you would actually be bringing. You're nodding your head pretty perf- profusely, uh, aggressively at that one. I would, I would put Mew to this one. <laughs> and myself, I'm Team Arvinzard. Uh, not because I think it's the best deck. I just think it is a very good, consistent deck that isn't as linear as people say it is. It's, it turns out only having one attack is still perfectly fine because you also have like luke mentioned plenty of other attacks that you can do that are pretty cool yeah i mean those are the three decks i think have the best chance of winning so that's a pretty good roster that we have so speaking of which there are a lot of decks that we didn't mention and you said those three are the three most likely to win but what are going to be the decks that are going to be the most likely to show up in decent numbers at laic so one of the ones that I think to start off the conversation, we have seen in online tournaments, we've heard on I digest enough content that people seem to really be high on Roaring Moon is going to be the most played deck at everything that's ever existed because it's aggro and people love aggro decks. Sure. Zach, what are your thoughts? Is Roaring Moon the most played deck or are we going to see something else take that number one spot or is it going to be too close to matter? This podcast is sponsored by Tabletop Village. Tabletop Village is the premier Pokemon first trading card game store in the United States. And if you shop at tabletopvillage.com and use code MELLOW5, that's M-E-L-L-O-W, the number five, you will receive 5% off your order of any sealed products, any sleeves, or even other games that they have, including Yu-Gi-Oh! One Piece or Flesh and Blood. So be sure to shop at tabletopvillage.com. Use code MELLOW5 to help support the podcast. People like the new deck. Like when we saw LEIC last year, right? And Lugia came out. Everyone played Lugia. There's so many Lugia decks in top eight and all of day two and everything. Lugia was everywhere, like just everywhere. Roaring Moon, not as good as like Lugia, <laughs> but it's still like up there. I think if someone can figure out the consistency issues 
Like you can sometimes a hit, it's wonderful. You just roll your opponent. Sometimes you go more pico pass, and like that—that's the deck sometimes. So if they could figure that out, I think they might do well. Or if they could just high roll for the tournament, pretty good. Um, it's going to be very popular. It's a new deck to play. It's fun. It's explosive. Um, I can see it being number one for sure. Luke, what are you thinking? Is Roaring Moon the number one, or is it something else, or does it not matter because everything's going to be about equal? Um, I don't know that everything will be about equal for this one. Uh, I mean, it depends relative what you mean about equal, but um, for for I just context think... for you and listeners, I guess about equal would be like fifteen, fifteen, fourteen, thirteen, thirteen for the top five, right? For percentages, like they're yeah. all within a percent or two of each other. I think there's two decks that have a chance of being fifteen percent or higher, mm. and that's Roaring Moon and Chi and Pal. I don't think Chi and Pal deserves that popularity now i don't necessarily think roaring moon is better than chi and pal in a term of um like overall strength and matchup spread and chance to win or top eight the event um but uh roaring moon like sack was saying makes sense it is the it is the new deck it took mm. it took people uh, a little while to figure out that roaring moon would be the deck of the of the set you know, um, but it is um, uh, just an incredibly powerful card. It's well statted, like all of its attributes are incredible, right down to its weakness being irrelevant um, for the most part. Um, it has two incredible, incredible attacks, which we don't see very often on new cards. Like mm -hmm. fan, it, it reminds a lot of people in Giratina V-Star that way, because Giratina V-Star has two incredible attacks, except Roaring Moon can use both of them as much as it wants. Uh, theoretically, for the most part, until it's knocking itself out with frenzied gouging. Um, but yeah, Roaring Moon, I'd be surprised if it wasn't around the 15% mark. Mm -hmm. um, I think if the tournament was last week or maybe a little bit farther, or maybe a week or two ago, that Chi and Pal would have been maybe even more popular than Roaring Moon because. Um, yeah, Chi and Pal got a lot of hype because it was already like maybe the fifth best deck in format, and now it has Iron Hands that auto wins Guardian, auto wins Lost Zone Box, and the problem is that Lost Zone Box variants all clumped together mm -hmm. had been like ten to fifteen percent of the meta for a while, and then in day two it's even higher because a lot of good players play Lost Zone, and it has very high skill expression, so a lot of Lost Zone convert into day two, and it's I don't think it's going to be like that. I'm sure I'm sure there will be good players to play Lost Zone box. I'm sure it will show up in day one and day two, but it will show up in day one and day two just like other decks had been in the past, not like Lost Zone at its prime. Mm -hmm. At least for this tournament, I would expect, because there are reasons not to play it. We should expect there to be a lot of Chi and Pal with hands, and a lot of Maridon with hands, and some Lugia with hands. Regardless if they're the best deck or not, they will show up. Mm -hmm. um, but what I think people are now understanding about Chi and Pal with hands is that you have a good matchup against Lost Zone, and you have a good matchup against Guardi, but they're probably not as popular and as prevalent as they were a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So going into a 1-5-1 format tournament or an Obsidian Flames format tournament with Chi and Pal with Iron Hands, you'd farm the whole 
the whole building because of all of the Gardevoir and all the Lost Zone and all of the things that Iron Hands is good against. But in this new tournament uh, at LAIC, you know, with the age of all the uh, internet communication that we have, everybody already knows that Iron Hands is a threat. And people know that they can't just copy-paste Lost Zone and still have a really good matchup into Chi and Pal and a really good matchup into Maridon. And their Lugia matchup's even worse now. Lost Zone already hated seeing Lugia. So um, Chi and Pal, I think, will be a little over 10%. Roaring Moon should should be 15. It's a, it's a good deck, not the best deck, but for how powerful it is, it's easy enough to play. Hmm. Um and then from there, I think there will be a ton of decks between like seven to eleven percent, and they can all be mishmashed in whatever order you want because they'll be pretty significantly indifferent from one another. So I want to add something to what both of you said pretty much, and this is something. Look, I'm the host. I'm the one who's allowed to get canceled. You two can tell me why I'm wrong or whatever, but this mm-hmm. is something that I haven't heard people saying. Leic is the largest it has ever been. There are significantly more, honestly, pretty average players attending two to three ICs this year in order Mm -hmm. to earn championship points. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? They're going to be competent. They're going to be tested. But that also means these decks are presumably going to see higher amounts of play, whether it is Qian Pao. It's not like a full on high roll deck, right? But you're hitting the right matchups. You're getting what you need. You're setting up. Roaring Moon is very fast. It's very aggressive. It's kind of like when JW talked about Mariadon of like, I don't have to work as hard to win games as my opponent does. And so I'm less likely to misplay. And I think Roaring Moon is that exact same thing, right? So it's important that this is not the LAIC of pre-pandemic for those of us that played it, where the percentage of great players was kind of ridiculous, And now it's like, well, as the tournament gets larger, it's a lot more people who are going for the championship points to get to 600 or 500 for EU. And that's going to make these decks a little more prevalent than I think we had seen before. And, you know, if you compare it to last year, it didn't matter because Lugia was so far and away the best deck going into that that format. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, that was like if we erased Chi and Pal, Gardevoir, Charizard, Giratina, Lasso and Maridon. (laughs) from existence and we just had roaring moon and <laughs> like yeah it's a very very different beast um what i also will say is very related to that about you know um there will actually be kind of a bell curve of players at laic as opposed to there being a uh like an unweighted amount of very dedicated players and then people from latin america now there's like an entire population of players of all skill levels traveling from other places to go play at laic um the game has grown the invite structure has changed but um you know i i coach a lot i just i answer a lot of messages about decks on twitter and everything and um the thing i've been telling people is listen if you don't want uh, if you don't have like the competence and the fundamentals to put yourself into Gardevoir or Charizard or a Lost Zone deck or maybe even a funky rogue build of some kind, um, and you don't have that confidence to get the points that you want out of the tournament, I think you're picking from Roaring Moon, Chi and Pao, and Maridon, right? And, and there's a couple different things to like pros and cons. Chi and Pao is a rare candy turn two deck. If you mm-hmm. got 
rare candy on turn two, you have a very good likelihood of winning this game, especially if you went first. Um, if you are playing Roaring Moon, like you said, your opponent is probably playing harder than you, um, but your deck is also very good. It's, it's unequal to its power level based on how much I think skill has to go into it and how much um, how much your head's going to hurt after nine rounds. Um, it, it's still a lot of actions, but a lot of it's front loaded in like the first two turns trying to turbo energies onto the board. And then Maridon, um is a little bit more versatile than roaring moon in that it has more macro decisions to make so there's differing lines of play there's different attackers um you have an evolution pokemon optimally i think roaring moon optimally should be playing all basics but maridon will have flaffy um so there are more moving pieces with maridon and i also think you get to draw less cards with maridon and so some of those decisions are going to matter even more whereas with roaring moon it's like okay i'll dump my hand with squawk um i'll dump my hand again to draw three with restart i'll poke a stop uh and so you're you're getting a lot of chances to even make up for misplays whereas with maridon i think it is a little more punishing on misplays and um there are less decisions to make though with maridon compared to Chien and compared to Roaring Moon. So they all have their pros and cons, and you kind of just have to gauge, you know, um, what kind of deck fits my skill set the best. Do I, Am I better with sequencing eight, train, eight item cards on the first turn to mm -hmm. hit these dark patches and everything? Or would I rather, um, you know, have a little bit of a high rolliness with Chien Palvax Caliber, but if I get into the game, I'm really in the game. Or would I rather have Maridon, where I make a couple of choices each turn, but they can all be pretty impactful. So I want to add something about the Roaring Moon that you mentioned in there, and it was mm -hmm. at the Regional of Doom. We were casting, it was your game actually, against, it was round three, but we were casting yeah, from the side, turtle. yeah, casting from the side of Roaring Moon. And I was casting with Emmy, neither of us have played very much i've played zero roaring moon she has played a little bit of roaring moon and we were looking at the hand and it's like oh do we squawk now do you poke a stop now we're kind of discussing the sequencing and in the end it really didn't matter like you said because they had about 20 cards left in deck they drew mm -hmm. so many cards between poke stop and everything that there was like well they hit everything they needed in whatever order because they drew all of the cards and like you said yeah. that kind of makes up for potential mistakes or even like yeah, unfamiliarity right yeah like in the long run of a tournament you're probably not winning if you're not you know if you don't know like, what the perfect. proper sequencing yeah, yeah. but you can go pretty far and you can get unpunished for a lot of those things that uh yeah guardy doesn't do right <laughs> guardy will punish you very hard for using a fog crystal before refinement when you're looking for as many energies as possible or whatever right yeah, like this is a tournament where if this is my last chance for points, like let's say this was NAIC mm -hmm. and I need 80 points for my world's invite and I'm saying, okay, I don't care about winning the event, top eighting the event, I want to go to worlds. This would be the perfect time to say, okay, let's pick Roaring Moon and just play it as optimally as possible. And there are going to be some games where I cannot will this deck to win for me because I there's no other kind of influence I can put on it with uh, uh, lines of play or anything like that. But if I play it well enough, it should get me those six wins or those five wins in a tie um, just because the deck has that inherent power.
there's another deck that we've kind of alluded to a little bit, and it's because it's LAIC. Last LAIC was just Lugia Central. It was far and away BDIF, etc., right? Lugia still exists. <laughs> Lugia either looks exactly the same as it did before, or you're running the Earthen Vessel, so you have extra Archaeops discard and the Lightning Energy, and Luke, you're aggressively taking your head no. So I want Sack to lead us off with this one. Uh, Lugia. Is this still a real deck in this format, or have we been ignoring it for good reason? All right. I think everything that was previously like previously said was just very well said. Like the whole bell curve of players, the amount of players we get. Um, however, like if you're not sure of your skill set, I think Lugia is one of those decks you can still pick up. Like even like colorless Lugia, like even more simple single strike Lugia. Um, there's like decisions that go into it, and like others would tell you differently that there's a lot of like gameplay matchups and whatnot. But I think it's very strong still. Um, if you can make it past turn one and not get dogged by Roaring Moon, but <laughs> In like addition, it's like very consistent, very straightforward, and it got like new tools in like the earthen vessel to help discard the archaeops. And now we can play cards like Charizard to like play a basic fire energy. But Charizard, we can play the Iron Hands, which can show up some matchups, and I think it's just very helpful. So I think in addition to Chimpao, Maridon, and Ryan Moon, you can add Lugia into that mix of I'm not sure what to play, I'm not sure of my skill set. We can just add Lugia right into there. It's very, it's uh, very similar to Lugia of old. You still get like the Colorless, the Snorlax, the Weird Deer, and stuff. But now you just add new tools that aren't very new because we've seen them before, and like the Radiant Charizard, and now like the Iron Hands, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point. If anyone hasn't played with the Radiant Charizard and Basic Fire, I do want to add. You might be saying, like Sack, we've played Radiant Charizard with Luminous Energy before. It is night and day different. The handful of games I've played with it, the fact you can attack with Charizard at any point is so good. I have successfully used that thing for all five energies, which was. A very optimal play going into, you know, hit 230 into a Roaring Moon, right? So the Fire Energy makes that card so much better than it was before. It's like a very watered-down version of the Aurora uh, Lubia, which was by far and away the best deck in format at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, now we have a little taste of that with uh, Charizard again and Iron Hand subbing in for Stoutland V. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, def definitely a good comparison and um yeah i mean i i don't personally like lugia um i never have i have never played it to any tournament of any kind um because if you like it's so linear but that's great if you don't have time to study a meta game and study a format and you know you're going and you would like to do well and play a competitive deck but the deck you know is lugia then that's fine you know um you're always going to you're typically going to do better with a deck that you understand how to play and you understand your win conditions and your matchup concepts for than a deck that is a little bit better. Like I'd, I'd personally say that Roaring Moon's a little bit better than Lugia right now, but if you haven't played at all with Roaring Moon and you've played a lot with Lugia, then you're probably going to do better with Lugia. I think that's another like <laughs> good point of, uh, it was, gosh, LAIC 2019, right? Where we had just gotten the ADP set. Before mm -hmm. ADP was ADP. This was Omnipoke rating it 2 out of 5, right? But yeah. it did become a force in the meta. But the finals of that tournament was still 
the two best decks from the previous format list had been refined which they have with lugia the people knew what they were doing who were in the finals like they had played those decks before so that's something you can never take for granted of if you haven't broke roaring moon maybe you don't play roaring moon maybe you play something where you're like well i know the list i know the matchups i know the deck and hey this is this is plenty this is going to take me very 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 far when people try a little too hard for stuff that may not work out the best or it might obviously it does depend right yeah i mean you always need to take into account what's actually happening in the games that you're playing leading up to the event right like if you're playing a deck of roaring moon and you're hearing us talking about it on this podcast right now and you're going like oh and 10 on ptcg live you shuffle up some irl hands you're like this deck isn't beating anything well don't play roaring moon then you know <laughs> like you might have a bad list you might be getting unlucky maybe the deck isn't good and we're wrong um but like yeah the old decks typically do not disappear in a matter of one set mm -hmm. there will be lost zone boxes doing well if you know, some players that know how to play Lost Zone Box are playing it. Pay attention to the results of your own actual games that you're playing. And, you know, it's good to listen to things like this as um, supplemental resource for your preparation. But I really highly suggest also listening to your own results if you feel like you're playing the decks the way they're supposed to and you're playing against opponents who are playing the decks pretty well then you should be taking your own results pretty heavily weighted. Shout out to, if you did not listen to me, give my post uh, Sacramento regionals recap where my own results with Guardi did not back up bringing the deck. Everyone told me to bring it and it didn't go well. <laughs> should tr trust your own results. It is usually a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. That happened to me a lot with Arceus and Teleon where like everybody told me Arceus and Teleon was dead because Palkia came out in Astral Radiance. And then I got a lot of CP with Arceus and Teleon the next few events. Bubble 33rd. That was fun, but. <laughs> Cost less money than it would have now, at least. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go ahead and uh, one quick little last roundtable. What is one thing for LAIC? It could be a prediction. It could be advice that you might have moving forward uh luke why don't you start us off either a prediction or advice or just one more thing you have not said yet about laic Ooh, okay um or i can start yeah. us off if you that was a uh, too vague yeah it's pretty open-ended I'm, I'm searching for something though <laughs> yeah okay so i'm gonna go with a prediction and my prediction is gonna be nothing in top eight is quote-unquote new so roaring moon doesn't count as new to me nothing is going to be something that we haven't seen as a like oh this is a deck that is going to exist so like it could be golden go it could be roaring moon those don't count as new i mean like there's no age of slash in top eight or there's no fancy new counter deck that comes out of nowhere i think it's going to be all the stuff we are already expecting doing well at laic zach what about you um i guess we could go with the advice route yeah um tech four or make sure you have a plan for control i think like snorlax stall or anything like that is going to be just relevant and a group of players is going to bring it and it's going to be very very good and if you don't have an out to it or if you have never encountered snorlax control or stall or whatever like black lax 
Uh, if you've never encountered it, you don't know how to play around it, you're just going to get rolled um, all day long. So, like, plan for it, bring attack. Uh, one switch card is not going to do it. Uh, just, yeah. I hit control in Peoria. I was playing Lost Box. I didn't know the matchups. I played a Clara, a Palpad, four Super Rods, four Switch Cards, four Ropes with my Lost Box. And I just barely won a 40-minute game because I didn't know how to play that game. In reality, all you have to do is put Dragonite V in the active and just, like, Dragon Gale over and over and over again. That's the only thing you have to do. Keep your Switch Cards in hand so when they, like, air because of the Greninja, you can switch back into Dragonite, and that's it. That's all you have to do. I didn't know that. So here I am playing a, just a grueling matchup, 40 minutes long of Lost Box. Do I have enough resources? So either like playing out, play Minior, play some Switch cards, play your Toro, anything like that. But I think Control is going to be very good going into this meta, especially with Counter Country. Luke, what about you? Prediction or advice? Yeah, my advice. Okay, a little bit of the opposite of what Sack said, but <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back around and tie in that you know a tech against control isn't bad, but don't if you can really help it. it I really dislike teching one or two or even more cards that are for a specific deck like the one one Toad Scroll. If I thought she and Pal was going to be nearing twenty percent. Then and the Toad Scroll and Golden Go was a real deck. Then maybe I would play it. Um, but a card like Minior, um, I don't think if you just slot that into your deck and then don't think about the control matchup, Minior is going to be a dead card in eight of your rounds, and then you're still going to lose to control. Um, <laughs> you know there are cards like Professor Toros in Gardevoir, Professor Toros in Charizard. Professor Toros has a lot of uses. You can use that generally in a lot of your games. Um, uh, like last format or for for many formats, people would ask me, should I play a Manaphy to tech against Kyogre? I would say no. Kyogre is going to be two and a half percent of day one, and there will be a few to trickle into day two. You should play more Judges or more Ionos or more Paths or maybe even Lost City because those will be good against every deck you play against. And Manaphy in some of those metas was very irrelevant unless you played against Kyogre, depending on your deck. Um, I, that is a very tried and true method that you should tech for cards that uh, are generally good but also work specifically well against the decks that you are looking to play against that you want to, you know, that you want to beat, like um, Defiance Band or Vitality Band in Charizard for the Chi and Pal matchup, as opposed to the Toad Scroll. Um, like I said, the the Judge or Iono for the Lost Zone decks instead of the Manaphy against specifically Kyogre. Um, so yeah, if, if you are putting like Escape Rope in your deck, Professor Toros in your deck, Jet Energy in your deck. And those are cards that you see uses for them in a general way and against other matchups or just inherently in your deck, it can help them function better. Then that's great. And then you can also build upon that and start conceptualizing your matchup against control. Okay, when do I play my out to them? How many outs do I actually need? Is this enough? Because it's also just fine to scoop to control and then win all of your other rounds, you know? Like, if your deck is inherently very, very bad against control, one card probably isn't going to help. Um, but, like, in Arvinzard, if you're already playing two jet energies and an escape rope, then 
throwing in that Toro might be the one more card you needed to get out of the active enough times to beat control. I know not your point, but I do have to add, if you're playing Arvinzard, you should 100% play Toro and debatably a second one. That card is It's awesome. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Toro is good. You're healing a 330 HP Zard. You're picking up a Luminion. You do a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. It's Penny and Cheryl in one card. Anyway, I know that wasn't your point. That was a good <laughs> that was a good combination of the two, right? Of like, Zach, know your matchups, and then you don't overtech if it's a bad matchup. Just kind of be like, well, that sucks. <laughs> Yeah, really, The if you want the short version, it's tech for the field of decks, don't tech for a specific archetype. I like to try to group decks into, like, okay, uh, Judge really hurts them, Manaphy really hurts them, like, and, and see which group of deck I would like to target, mm -hmm. so I can play a generally good card that can also help in many situations. Right. Luke, if the people want more from you, where can they find your content? Uh, my YouTube is Celio's Network, and my Twitter is Celio's underscore network. And um, I, you can find pretty much everything from either of those two. Zach, what about you? Where can the people find you? All right. We started this podcast by saying all the people that try to meta me on Twitter the two days before the regional. Um, I don't do that at all. I'm pretty sure. open, very honest. <laughs> I don't meta manipulate. That's not something to do. I will probably like leak my whole list either on stream over at SaxX17. We can watch me live play those probably the 60 cards I'm playing two days before the tournament on stream or over on Twitter at SaxX underscore 17. You might see the whole 60 on there. Um, but if you see me at regionals, that's not true. I don't post my whole 60 on a Twitter. If you hit me <laughs> around seven, around nine on a winning in, don't check my Twitter. Don't look at the VODs. Those lists aren't real. You don't have to go look. That's not true. Anywho, uh, you can go find me over on Twitch and Twitter. Myself, you can find me on Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube at Mellow underscore Magikarp. Be sure to rate and review the show. If you made it this far, you may as well spend the extra 30 seconds and help boost us in the algorithm this has been an episode of the lake of rage podcast we'll catch you all next week